I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, how the music of Motown changed our culture and why its founder, Barry Gordy, was relentless. People are human beings and we feel the same things. And that was the whole purpose of me forcing my songs on white radio because I felt that we're all the same. But even he couldn't control his artists, especially when they wanted to sing about the politics of the 60s. These young singers grew up, and when you grow up in a family, there comes a point where you need to chart your own path. Then we go from songs about the heart to a look at the heart itself. Even though we know today that the heart is not the seat of the soul, our emotional lives affect our hearts in multiple mysterious ways. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. To tell the truth is proud to present the Supremes. In 1965, a game show that had become a fixture on CBS, a show called To Tell the Truth, started in an unusual way with a live performance of this song. of singers were just about the hottest musical act in America in 1965. These are the Supremes. They're singing Baby Love, a prime example of the biggest thing in rock and roll, the Motown sound. But the Supremes, with lead singer Diana Ross, they weren't the focus of the show. Instead, it was the man who had made the Supremes famous, a man not nearly as identifiable to the American public as the stars that he promoted, someone whose creative energy, whose entrepreneurship, had already profoundly changed American music. The Motown sound was created by one of these three men. What is your name, please? My name is Barry Gordy, Jr., my name is Barry Gordy Jr. My name is Barry Gordy Jr. Only one of these gentlemen is the real Barry Gordy Jr. The other two are imposters and will try to fool this panel. So that evening in 1965, the celebrity panel on To Tell the Truth got to ask the real Barry Gordy and the fake ones questions. Here's actress Kitty Carlisle addressing a question to the real Gordy. Kitty Carlisle. Uh, number one, what did you do before you started this company? I was a, uh, I was uh, an employee of uh, Ford Motor Company. Unfortunately, he must not have been super convincing. Not one celebrity believed Barry Gordy to be himself. They all put their bets on the imposters, who turned out to be in reality a doctor and a hairstylist. Will the real Barry Gordy Jr. please stand up? <laughs> The fact that Gordy could at once be so closely associated with a pantheon of stars, the Supreme, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, and yet not be immediately recognizable, spoke to the way that he viewed his role in the music business. He was, as he said on the show, a former employee of Ford, and he understood that behind beautiful, impressive cars was a whole lot of work that no one ever saw. That's something he recalled decades later. It's just like the auto factory. I used to see those cars coming in, you know, a bare metal frame, and they got a brand new car. So I said, wait a minute, why can't I do that with music, my music and my, you know, with the people I work with? The 
Motor City. That's the place I'm singing on. Duke Fakir, one of the members of the Four Tops, said that Detroit in the late 50s and early 60s, while Motown was just getting off the ground, it was a place where music and auto manufacturing felt like they both underpinned the city. There was a lot of music. There was a lot of going out, coming in. People were working hard. You know, the factories, you could hear them clinking and clanking. Uh, and it had, a, it had like a rhythm to it, you know? And what Barry Gordy did in the Motor City, which is where the Mo and Motown comes from, it was nothing less than a transformation of rock music. The first sort of explosion of rock and roll had kind of, if not exactly petered out, had changed, had sort of, uh, the, the, the spark had gone a little. Adam White is a music journalist, and he's the author of Motown, The Sound of Young America. He says that Gordy understood that rock longed for an injection of something new. If you think about, you know, rock and roll's birth in sort of 1954-55 uh, with the likes of Bill Haley, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis and so on, you know, that was a remarkable explosion both for the kids who bought the music and who adored and consumed the music. But then by 1960, the flame had dimmed a little bit. But Motown transformed a lot more than American music. It changed American culture and it changed what seemed possible. Here's Gordy again in a 2015 interview talking about why he believed in a highly segregated country, black artists could appeal to white audiences. People are human beings and we're all, you know, we feel the same things. And that's, that was the whole purpose of me forcing my songs on right, white radio because I felt that we're all the same. And understanding that sameness also happened to be great business. Not tell everybody all the time. It was not as hard as people think because I made the truth entertaining. Adam White, the music journalist, says a lot of the most exciting entertainment around 1960 was from singers with at least some R&B flavor. Folks like the Coasters, the Shirelles, and Ray Charles. Georgia. Teenagers was listening either to R&B stations or they were listening to pop stations that would play some of that URB music. So in brief, Barry's timing was very good in that sense. There was an opportunity for it. And Gordy was relentless. He had some success as a boxer, and he was not someone who passed up golden opportunities. White says Gordy actually spent his time on the assembly line at Ford dreaming up songs in his head. And when he started his record label with a loan of just a few hundred dollars, he never forgot what cars had taught him. The quality control element of Motown was something that he picked up directly from working in a car factory. He understood how everything had to be at a level of quality and integrated unusually for a music company into his business. And so, you know, some records were thrown out because they weren't good enough, just like a car that would come through that perhaps the part, you know, wasn't polished enough or something wasn't fixed on well enough or the mirror was the wrong shade. He understood that element of it, which worked in music as indeed in other aspects of life, that there's a direct link to the experience he had before he got into music. Gordy's approach worked. Motown's rise was meteoric, and the label started churning out hits almost immediately, like this one. That's Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, a group of teenagers who had sung together in the Glee Club at Inkster High School in Michigan. 
it became the most popular song in America and the first from Motown to hit number one. The success was confirmation for Gordy that he could bring more than a new sound to America. He could mint legions of stars, high school kids, obscure singers who were little more than raw talents, and he could get the world to notice. Take Barrett Strong, a teenager who recorded another immensely successful song for Gordy, not long before Please Mr. Postman burst on the scene. Strong's single, which climbed high on the R&B charts, was called Money, That's What I Want. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need money. Soon, a relatively new group from England was so profoundly affected by Motown and the Motown sound that they decided to cover both Please Mr. Postman and Money, That's What I Want. The group was called The Beatles. White says that the Beatles' embrace of Motown changed everything for Barry Gordy in a couple of ways. Firstly, financially, Barry had his own publishing company. You know, he had his own songwriters, roster of songwriters, and published everything in-house. This was a man to whom self-sufficiency was absolute key to Hmm. his success and to his progress and the way he built his business. So when the Beatles recorded those songs, not only did that music begin to influence others? And indeed, the Beatles talked up. I mean, the Beatles were essentially Motown's biggest fans at that point. Mm. And the word of mouth that they gave to those artists was extraordinary. And you couldn't have bought that with money. Those are the best fans to have, right? If the Beatles are your number one fan, that's pretty good. Absolutely. And they would talk about them. You know, they would talk about the Miracles and Smokey Robinson. They would talk about Mary Wells. Once you have that, you know, you're on the map. The other thing you have to remember is because Barry uh, had his own publishing company and published those songs, the money that came in when the Beatles album started to sell on the scale they did, not just in the U.S. or the U.K., but around the world, that money came into Motown, into Motown's publishing arm, and it Hmm. gave it a cash injection, the likes of which helped it to build, helped it to grow. So the Beatles did things both financially and creatively, if you like. But you're absolutely right to identify that as a key moment in the company's growth and success. Hmm. Um, Let's talk about another aspect of Motown's success. Um, I remember a few years ago interviewing Guy Kawasaki, who worked for Steve Jobs. And uh, one of the things he said was, you know, a lot of people know that Steve Jobs was kind of controlling sort of a micromanager. And um, uh, Kawasaki said that the organizational structure was like Steve Jobs and 10,000 direct reports. Um, <laughs> and, and you write about Barry Gordy as um, also being kind of a micromanager. He had he hired um, a mistress of etiquette. Yep. He had a master of choreography. It really it sounds to me like he didn't want to leave a lot to chance with his artists. No, but he was smart enough as the business grew to understand that he had to pass responsibility to other people. And that was a key quality, too, because in a business which you could would be easily identifiable as a black business, as an African-American business, Barry didn't care who he hired, the color of their skin, as long as they could do the job. So one of the key hires for him in 1961, and it goes back to the record you played earlier, Marvelettes, Please, Mr. Postman, was a guy called Barney Ailes. And he was 
a salesman. He was one of the best salesmen in the business. He had some experience in, in Detroit before, but he was a Motown distributor early. Barry spotted him and realized this man had a salesman's talent, and he mm. brought him on board on staff in 1961, and it was Barney's job to get the records played and the company paid. And Barry took some heat for that. You know, why not hire a black man to do that job? And Barry didn't care because he just wanted someone who could do the job. So you open your book by describing riots in Detroit. It's 1967. And at that time, as, as you sort of lay it out, there are Motown stars scattered all over the city. They're practicing music. Fires are ripping through town. Um, the governor of Michigan, George Romney, asks the president, Lyndon Johnson, to call in federal troops. Why uh, did you start your story there? Uh, it was dramatic. It was, in a sense, it was the antithesis of what Motown was trying to accomplish. Um, it was it was a moment, you know, beyond imagination. It was a moment where people rose up for a different set of reasons that had to do with their environment and their condition and their lives. I think it was a reflection of the way America had changed by 1967. You know, if you think about Motown began in a more promising period, you know, under JFK, um, when the mood was more optimistic. I think the fact that ultimately that, that optimism was not correctly placed, that it didn't lead to where um, people hoped it would mm -hmm. um, cause the riots. So it's a mirror, if you like, to what Motown was able to do and an indication of the limits of what it could do. And, uh, right after those riots um, in Detroit, I think just a few weeks after, Gordy had this huge national sales convention um, in Detroit to try to sell the music. One of the things he said there was that Motown showed, and this is a quote, people of all races not only can but do work together to achieve heights previously limited by lack of understanding. How much do you think Barry Gordy cared about, like, politics and social issues uh, how much did that factor into what he was doing as a business person? He understood it, but he was, as you say, he was a business person. He mm -hmm. was clear-minded, ambitious, and determined. And it was about music and success in entertainment and showbiz. He cared about making his artists accepted and popular, first in America and then across the world. So, of course, he was not blind or deaf to what was happening around him. He could not be. But I think he was determined that his business... And the music his company was making and his artists were making was the key. If he got distracted, that purpose would be affected. So um, mm -hmm. I think he was very clear of that. And, and he took a great deal of criticism for that, particularly in that late 60s period after the riots. And as the, the racial climate was uh, more dangerous and was more heightened. So he, he did certain things, uh, some of it behind the scenes. Um, look, he issued three albums by Dr. Martin Luther King. He made a commitment. He spent. He made donations to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was aware of that climate, mm -hmm. but his business was music, and he left the politics to other people. You broke my heart because I couldn't dance. You didn't even want me around. And now I'm back to let you know I can really shake them down. We're going to come back in a minute with more of the story of Motown and Barry Gordy. And by the way, the song you're hearing right now is Do You Love Me from 1962. It's performed by the Contours, but it was written by Gordy himself. Watch me now! Hey! 
after the break, we'll talk about Motown reaching maturity and increasing tension in the ranks. At the beginning, he, he was very uncomfortable. He didn't like that, what was happening with his artists. He didn't like that they were becoming independent and not willing to play the game the way he wanted it. But he understood in time that that's what was going to happen. It was a direct result of his success in guiding them to that point. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub, back right after this. In the late 1950s, a former boxer and assembly line worker named Barry Gordy Jr. dreamed of being in the music business. By the early 1960s, he was a major force in it. And he and his artists were changing American business, American music, and American culture. But the struggle for civil rights and women's rights, the war in Vietnam, they were forces reshaping Motown's artists. And they made Gordy, who was a pragmatic, hard-charging businessman, a little bit worried. Love Child, released by Diana Ross and the Supremes, centered on the issues of poverty and illegitimacy, which was different from the sort of traditional love songs that the group had sung years before. Ross was one of Gordy's big stars, along with folks like Stevie Wonder. And by the late 1960s, after major riots all across the country, including in Detroit, where Motown was based, politics had begun creeping into the music around them. In 1971, another huge Motown star, Marvin Gaye, came out with this song, What's Going On. Those lyrics, picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me with brutality, they weren't subtle. And Gordy knew, as he recalled much later, exactly what was happening with Marvin Gaye. He changed his image altogether and became an activist singer, put out an activist album, and I said, you're only our pop star. You're our main pop star. Why do you want to talk about police brutality and this and that? He said, because... You know, I want to awaken the minds of mankind. I have a brother in Vietnam, and I don't care about being no pop singer. I just want to be a singer. Adam White, author of Motown, The Sound of Young America, says this was a moment when tensions escalated between artists who wanted to take more of a stand in a country that was rapidly changing and Gordy, a micromanager who wanted to protect the business he had poured his life into. Marvin was the epitome of it. Hmm. And... The the analogy has often been drawn with a family. You know, these young singers uh, and musicians grew up. And when you grow up in a family, there comes a point where you need to chart your own path. You need to find your own way forward. You need to be true to yourself, which is what happened particularly with Marvin and also with Stevie. They had spent 10 years absorbing, learning, um, becoming the best they could be 
thanks to Motown and to Barry Gordy's business. But ultimately, the talented ones with a vision and a depth to them wanted to be their own person. And Marvin was one of those, and Stevie was one of those. And that, you know, it's like a teenager clashing with his or her parents. That's going to happen. Barry came to understand that. He told me once that at the beginning, he, he was very uncomfortable. He didn't like that, what was happening with his artists. He didn't like that they were becoming independent and not willing to play the game the way he wanted it. But he understood in time that that's what was going to happen. It was a direct result of his success in guiding them to that point. So let's go back kind of to the beginning here. Uh, we opened with Diana Ross and the Supreme singing Baby Love. Um, and then we heard Love Child, which was a later hit of theirs. Obviously, Diana Ross was a very important star um, of Motown. And she was also somebody who had a romantic relationship with Barry Gordy. What was particularly important about her, both uh, to the label, but also to Gordy himself? Everything up to that point the release of that record and, and its success was prologue in a way because that was the real ba- breakthrough. Sure, Motown had had some successful records before. They'd had big hits before. But that was suddenly the point at which the game changed and particularly through television. And what you have to remember is that when the Supremes first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in late December 1964, that's really when things changed because suddenly there were these three great-looking black girls beaming into America's living rooms. And that began to change things, and it also began to help Barry understand the ambition and the horizons that he could rise to because of that success, because of that that crossover appeal is, is the way that it's often referred to in the industry. But that was the point at which I think he realized there was a star. There was both in the group and then in Diana. There was something that could go all the way. And at that point, soon after, after they've had you know, five consecutive number one records, he started to put them into into the mainstream of American showbiz. But television helped them do that. Do you think when you listen to music today, or even think about the industry today, it could be either on the sort of music level or on the more uh, sort of businessy level of things, what do you feel like Motown's legacy is? What, you know, it, what is its lasting influence I think it stood for something beyond music. It stood for, at any level, it stood for excellence, it stood for determination, it stood for success. It, it was kind of like if you start from the ground up and you know what you want to do and you have some skill at it, you can get anywhere. I mean, this young man from Detroit achieved something that is not likely to be forgotten, and I think it will endure past the baby boomer generation. Mm. There's a tendency to see it only as a a mirror and a reflection of the last 50 years and that generation growing up. I think in part because of the excellence of the songs, the universality of the lyrics, and the sort of almost the business model, um, it will endure. It will always be something to refer to and to look at as a mark of American excellence and its influence worldwide. Um, There's there's one other point I I would like to make, actually, that I think is somewhat not recognized as much, um, understandably given the power of the music and the artists and the talent. But the other thing about that business and about Berry in particular was he gave women responsibility 
unlike almost anyone else in the music business at that time. Now, part of this was family because he grew up with sisters and they, you know, they helped him in the business. But he was willing to give women beyond family responsibilities and roles that at the time no one else would do. Hmm. And I think that's something in this era that, that is worth recognizing and, and praising. Um, you know, he didn't think twice about it. It was something that just came naturally to him. Indeed, he, hmm. he made a joke to me once. He said, you know, when he first started hearing about women's rights, he thought it was a step down because he knew they controlled everything anyway. <laughs> Adam White is a music journalist. He's the author of the book Motown, The Sound of Young America. Adam, thank you so much. Kara, a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you. On our website, we'll have more videos of Barry Gordy interviews, including his full appearance on the television show To Tell the Truth, which I mentioned earlier. We'll also have a playlist from author Adam White looking at what, in his view, were the most impactful songs in the evolution of Motown. That's all at innovationhub.org. About 75 years ago, doctors were very worried. For a while in the 1940s, roughly one out of almost every two people in this country died of heart disease. It was a killer that captured the attention of the American medical establishment, says Sandeep Johar, a cardiologist and director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. And there's a a famous speech by Harry Truman where he speaks about heart disease using almost the same language as he spoke about the Soviets and the Iron Curtain that was descending over Eastern Europe. He said this is a tremendous challenge to the American public. Um, It is one that, you know, we have to fight with all our might and technology. In a sense, it was sort of like AIDS in the early 1980s in that it was a disease that dominated American medicine you know, in terms of research dollars as well as um, politically. In fact, Truman's predecessor, Franklin Roosevelt, had suffered from rising blood pressure leading up to his death in 1945. His last blood pressure measurement was a rather shocking 226 over 118. But his doctor didn't pay much attention to it. Truman saw the impact of heart disease, and he knew things had to change. So... You know, in the wake of FDR's death, which was a, you know, national trauma, the death of a beloved president who had gotten us through, you know, two of the most eventful periods in American history, the Great Depression and and World War II. Um, You know, in that wake, Congress decided to found the National Heart Institute under the umbrella of the National Institutes of Health. Johar, who's a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, says this pushed us towards a new understanding of the heart. Doctors invented cutting-edge procedures to help people with heart disease. Pioneering studies were launched to figure out what factors contributed to the disease. A few of those things, Johar says, were smoking, high blood pressure, and diabetes. 
What the big studies of heart disease didn't tend to focus on, at least in those early days, was the impact of more intangible things, things that might have seemed a little squishier to the medical establishment. But in the 1970s, the scholar Michael Marmot did research on a particular population in the San Francisco area, research that would tell us something crucial about the nature of the heart. In the study, Japanese immigrants in the United States were looked at. Now, people who live in Japan actually have very low rates of coronary disease. Those who move to the United States tend to have higher rates. Those who move to Hawaii actually have intermediate rates between those who live in mainland United States and those who live in Japan. So it seems like the, the further that, that Japanese immigrants move away from mainland Japan, the more heart disease they develop. The thinking was, well, that's because immigrants adopt American diets. And once they do that, they start to mimic American cholesterol levels and blood pressure. And voila, they're at a higher risk for heart disease. The Bay Area study proved that assumption was wrong. Those who had a more traditional lifestyle that was sort of in keeping with their Japanese roots. In other words, they had more Japanese friends, they had more Japanese co-workers, they spoke Japanese more, their kids spoke Japanese more, tended to have much less coronary disease, sort of in line with their counterparts still living in Japan. Those who ha- were more westernized and adopted more of an American social lifestyle, they tended to have much more coronary disease, sort of in keeping with the disease rates in Americans living in the United States. So, so th- that study really showed that psychosocial factors have to be important in the development of heart disease because you can't explain why coronary disease rates differed so much in these two subgroups that had essentially the same diet, exercise, blood pressures, cholesterols, and so on. The only thing that really substantially differed was the way that they chose to live. Sandeep Johar is the author, most recently, of Heart, a History. He argues that the next frontier for heart disease is prevention and thinking more about the heart in the ways that the study of Japanese Americans did, which isn't to say that blood pressure or smoking or diet aren't important, because they clearly are. But there are squishier things that are pretty key, too, like love and friendship and community. The power of the heart, both as a focus of medicine and as a symbol of love and goodness, has fascinated Johar his entire life. Sure, it's something that gets operated on, but it's also something we innately know to be affected by emotion. Think about expressions like, put your heart into it, wearing your heart on your sleeve, having a heart that's overflowing. Think about all the heart-shaped cards that people give out on Valentine's Day. Johar says some of the mental and physical connections that the heart makes, which we're just starting to understand, they have in some sense been understood by philosophers for thousands of years. In the Middle Ages, the plant called sylphium was used as a way of birth control, and the seed pod of sylphium actually resembles the Valentine heart. So that may be one of the reasons why the heart became associated with, you know, sex and romantic love. But before that, the Greeks, even the ancient Egyptians, thought of the heart as 
the sort of central player in the body, one the, uh, the place where the where the soul resided. In fact, when the Egyptians used to bury people, they used to take out their hearts as an offering to the um, underworld. It was very clear to the ancients that the heart was the central actor in, in, right. in the body, and in, in many ways that, that is still the case. Um, you tell this amazing story in your book of the first permanent artificial heart. Um, it was given to a man in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, 1982, and his wife, you know, he's had this big surgery, going in for this big surgery, and his wife says to doctors, which you quote, will he still be able to love me? And I feel like that yeah. speaks to even even with all the medical science we know, our even current conflation of like the medical value of the heart and like the emotional value of the heart. Exactly. I mean, I think that speaks to the central role of the heart in our culture. And one of the themes of my book is that even though we know today that the heart is not the seat of the soul or the repository of the emotions per se, our emotional lives affect our hearts in multiple mysterious ways. We know today that, you know, surges of adrenaline caused by emotional stress can have very harmful effects on the heart, both chronically uh, as well as acutely. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the, um, the so-called Takasubo syndrome. Takasubo uh, refers to a Japanese octopus trapping pot. Now, what does that have to do with the heart? Well, it turns out that when people suffer intense emotional upset, usually after the breakup of a romantic relationship, but sometimes after the loss of a spouse, they can develop what is commonly known as the broken heart syndrome. Mm. The heart actually acutely weakens, for reasons we don't quite understand, into... Uh, and changes shape into a takasubo, which is a Japanese octopus trapping pot. We don't know why it occurs. Um, we first um, identified this uh, syndrome probably about 25 years ago in autopsy studies of people who had been uh, emotionally or physically attacked but had not died from their injuries but had instead died of cardiac causes. And when their hearts were autopsied, there were telltale signs of heart damage and cell death. And then subsequently, we were able to identify living patients with this syndrome. Now, in many cases, the Takasubo cardiomyopathy resolves, but there is a fairly large subset of patients who progress to life-threatening arrhythmias, congestive heart failure, and even death. Hmm. And, you know, what's interesting is that a couple of things, a couple more things I'll say about it. One is that that you can develop a kind of Takasubo cardiomyopathy after a happy event too, like for example, you know, at a surprise birthday party or something like that. But the heart actually changes into a different shape, not a Takasubo, but actually a different shape. Now, why a different emotional precipitant would cause a different biological change in the human heart is completely unknown. That's one mystery. The other um, sort of interesting fact is that the Takasubo cardiomyopathy can happen not just after emotional upset, but also after widespread social upheaval, like, for example, after a hurricane or an earthquake. Huh. Okay. They've done studies where, where patients can develop this, this condition after sort of widespread 
um, environmental damage, loss of a home, and, and you know, and so on. So you know, it's just it, it just speaks to the fact that even though the heart doesn't contain the emotions, it's very responsive to them. So in a sense, our emotional lives are written on our hearts. Hmm. So heart failure is your specialty. Yes. Um, do you want to tell the story of how you became interested? in the heart in the first place, like why it became your whole life? Yeah. Well, uh, I have a very malignant family history of heart disease. My paternal grandfather died before I was born. And um, he died actually in front of my father of a sudden heart attack. My father was not yet 14 years old. And they were sitting together having lunch he and my grandfather, and my grandfather, um, you know, slumped to the floor. A traumatic uh, event had, had occurred earlier in the day. He'd actually been bitten by a snake. Hmm. And the family assumed that the death was from the snake bite. But when my grandfather was taken to the hospital, the doctor confirmed that, no, it was not, you know, venom from the snake, that nothing else could have killed my grandfather so quickly and that it was a heart attack. Now, maybe it was provoked by right. the worry or trauma from the snake bite. So that event is probably one of the most important events in my lifetime, and it happened before I was born. And the reason why I say that is because my father never got over his father's death. Um, it happened when he was a teenager, and the grief from that death would um, come out at various times, you know, through my childhood. You know, there was a sort of, the, there was a kind of grief that suffused the household. Uh, not all the time, but, you know, it, 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 it was almost always there. And so I kind of grew up with a fear of the heart as the executioner of men in the prime of their lives. My grandfather was healthy, apart from the snake bite earlier that morning. I mean, he was, he seemed perfectly fine. He was vigorous. He was working. And all of a sudden he was dead. And to, to me, it seemed like such a cheat that you could be healthy and, and actually still die. And, and there's only one organ that can mediate that. And that's the heart. And so I grew up with that fascination. And then uh, a few years back, when I learned that I have the beginnings of coronary artery disease, that you know, did nothing to mm -hmm. lessen my uh, fascination and obsession, um, you know, with the heart. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dr. Sandeep Johar, director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center and the author of Heart, A History. You know, one thing you say, though, is, you know, since Harry Truman said, let's tackle this thing. Let's get on it with heart disease. So, you know, about since the late 40s or 19 or the, the, the early 50s, we've done an incredible job in reducing uh, the amount of heart disease in the U.S. How have we done that? What's sort of the new technology, the new research that's allowed us to do that? Well, there's been an amazing progress in uh, in. Uh, heart technology, you know, in the last uh, 60 years or so, most of it's spearheaded in, in America. So if you think about the treatments that we usually associate with heart disease, stents, coronary angiograms, angioplasty, heart transplants, 
artificial hearts, coronary bypass surgery, and then pacemakers, defibrillators, all of that was developed essentially in the last half century or so. So there's been tremendous technological progress. And in fact, death rates from heart disease in the United States peaked in 1968, the year I was born. Hmm. And there's been a steady decline in part because of medical technology, in part because of drug therapy, and also in part because of public health innovations and public health initiatives like promoting smoking cessation, Mm -hmm. having people know their cholesterol, uh, know their blood pressure, try to reduce those risk factors. All that was, was instrumental in cutting down the rates of heart disease. But what's interesting is that in the last decade or so, the decline has decreased. Hmm. So heart rate deaths are leveling off. Okay. We're, we're, we're not seeing the kind of benefit that we got used to seeing in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, now, in part, that might be because Americans are more sedentary. There's probably more obesity. There's um, a probably hidden epidemic of diabetes. But what I try to argue in the book is that although we can expect medical innovations uh, and technologies to continue, I think that in some sense, heart treatments have become a victim of their own success. The success it was really stupendous. Treatment for heart disease is one of the great success stories uh, of the 20th century in medicine. But I think that we in the future will have to pay more attention to our emotional lives, to our community connections, to sort of sustain the kind of progress uh, in heart disease that we've become accustomed to. When you look back at that progress over the last 50 or 70 years, do you think there was a single technology that jumps out to you as like the most important or the most striking? Well, I would say that one of the key uh, themes in my book is that the heart was encased in taboos that made it an organ that people just didn't want to mess with. In fact, even as late as the late 19th century, the heart had never been operated on. Every other organ in the body, including the brain, had been operated on, but not the heart. And the reasons for that are somewhat obvious. One is the heart is constantly moving. It's very hard to stitch into an organ that moves in such an agitated way Mm. uh, like the human heart. The other is that the heart is constantly filled with blood. In fact, the typical blood volume in an adult human passes through through the heart every minute. So if you cut open the heart, you would bleed to death typically within a minute or so. So these were huge challenges. How do we operate on an organ that's filled with blood and constantly moving? So the, the solution, as we know today, was the invention of the heart-lung machine, a machine that act, would actually take over the circulation while the patient's heart was stopped, emptied of blood, opened up and fixed, and then they were weaned off the heart-lung machine. So I would say that so the, the... So the blood just routes through this machine? Is that how it works? That's right. So okay. the, the machine essentially is hooked up in parallel with the heart, and it shunts blood into the machine and away from the heart. And so then the heart is 
emptied of blood and then is basically stopped through you know, injection of potassium chloride, it fibrillates, it doesn't, no longer beats, and then you mm. can cut it open and fix it. Wow. Um, now, the, the development of the heart-lung machine took many decades. In fact, the first proposal for the heart-lung machine really wasn't until uh, the late 1920s, but the machine itself wasn't built till 1954. So before the machine was built, doctors had some outlandish ways of performing heart surgery. And I'll just tell you about one quick one. Okay. One of the most innovative surgeons of the 20th century, a, a guy named Walt Lillehei, who worked in Minneapolis, looked at the way that a uh, pregnant woman supplies blood to and oxygen to her fetus. Now, the fetus doesn't breathe. It's, it's floating in fluid. The way that the fetus grows and is nourished is because of a blood supply from the mother that delivers oxygen and removes waste. So little high reason, well, why can't I hook up a mother or a father to a child who needs open-heart surgery, hook them up artery-to-artery, vein-to-vein, and have the parent's heart beating blood, circulating blood into the child, just like a human heart-lung machine, while I stop the heart of the baby or the child open it up, fix it, and then disconnect the two humans and hope for the best. Did it and, work? And uh, he did these studies initially in dogs, and they didn't work mm -hmm. because there were problems with the connection of the circuits. But ultimately, he perfected the technique and eventually tried it on humans. Now, you can imagine the uproar. Wow. People said, you know, this is the first operation in human history that could kill two people. Mm -hmm. And no one wanted to let little high try it. But the reality was that congenital heart disease was a death sentence for children. Most didn't make it to adulthood. And Lillehei reasoned that these, these kids were condemned to an early death, and he was going to do whatever it took to, to fix their hearts so that they could live normal lives. And in fact, he performed these surgeries. Initially, they were deaths, and that's very, very unfortunate. But, you know, one thing that we tend to forget in medicine is that there's always a learning curve and someone has to go first. And, you know, unfortunately, in the 19, early 1950s, those people who went first were, were small children. And it was, um, it was difficult for everyone to watch. But in the end, Lillehei performed this technique of hooking up a parent to a child about 45 times with 28 long-term survivors, hmm. which was much better than the natural history of congenital heart disease. So history has judged his work to be successful. Hmm. So I would say that the, probably the central innovation that I talk about in the book and is central to the uh, amelioration of, of heart disease and heart disease deaths in this country was the invention of the heart-lung machine. Hmm. So finally... Um since you said we are not seeing the same kinds of reductions in death from um, heart disease that we've seen over the past several decades, um, but, but since it's still the top killer in America, as a cardiologist, if somebody was saying to you, look, I'm really trying to avoid heart disease, um, you know, what do you think I should do? What would you say? Well, I would say that there are some obvious things. Don't smoke. Eat right exercise, 
but also I think it's very clear to, to me today after two decades in the field that we need to pay more attention to our emotional lives, the quality of our relationships, our marital health, our, the health of our relationships with our children. You know, the connection and community are always thought of as aspects of our lives that improve the quality of our life. But I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that those things are important for our lifespans also. So the quality of our relationships, how we love, our capacity to transcend distress, those things are also a matter of life and death. Dr. Sandeep Johar is a cardiologist. He's a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, and he's also the author, most recently, of Heart, a History. Sandeep, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about why Johar thinks that emotions, community, and well-being are crucial to our future studies of heart health, he's written a New York Times op-ed about it. We'll have a link to that on our website, innovationhub.org. And one more thing before we go. We want to know how you feel about staying in hotels. It's for a story we're working on. Do you demand that you stay at a five-star hotel? Are you okay with a roadside motel? Or is something like Airbnb more your style? Let us know. You might get featured on a future show. You can send us an email, innovationhub at wgbh.org, or you can tweet at me. I'm at Kara E. Miller. Just tell us your name and where you're from. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Maciel Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.